0: Last week we talked about really one thing uh, and that one thing that we talked about last week was the the principle that there are two covenant mediators and you're represented by one of them um, and one of them is Adam and the other is Christ. Those are the only two options. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ and if you're in Adam you're dead and if you're in Christ you're alive. Those are the two options, right? There's two covenant heads, two covenant mediators and these two covenants define you, right? They they define you and, and where you are in relationship to God. Um, so there's no third option, means there's no alternative mode of salvation. There's no, you're, you're in covenant with God, period. But you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Um, so I wanted to add a clarification uh, that I hope will help understand what a covenant mediator does. We talked about this a lot last week, about a covenant mediator about how he's not a neutral third party, right? He's not standing in the middle between two warring factions and trying to find compromise and middle ground. Uh, A covenant mediator is really someone standing in place of someone else. He's representing um, and he's standing in place of a certain people. And so whatever happens to him happens to the people, right? If the covenant mediator does a good job and he obeys the covenant, and that means that all the people who he represents—it's as if they have obeyed the covenant, right? If he fails, then the people fail, right? If he lives, the people live. If he dies, the people die. And so, what we saw last week was uh, Romans. Paul says that uh, in Romans five that through one man, Adam, death came to all, right? Through his one transgression, death uh, reigned in all men. And likewise, or conversely, in Christ, through the one man's act of obedience the many were made righteous. So you're either in an Adam and you're dead, or you're in Christ and you're alive. And so the, the clarification I, wanna, I want to I want to introduce is that um, the covenant of grace doesn't have three parties. So to a covenant mediator, we often think he's a neutral third party standing in the middle. That would mean there's three parties in the covenant of grace. But that's not, that's not true. There's two covenants, sorry, there's two parties in the covenant of grace. This is a larger catechism. Um, question and answer 31. With whom was the covenant of grace made? The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam. And in him, all the elect as his seed. In other words, there's two parties in the covenant of grace. There's God, the Father, and then there's Jesus Christ. Those are the two parties. And then there's all the elect who tag along. They, they jump on board uh, on Christ. And if you are in Christ... That means that everything that happens to Christ you receive. But there's two parties in the covenant of grace. That's what a covenant mediator does. Right? He is the he is the party in the covenant of grace. And in him we receive everything that he receives. Um, which means that you can't, there is no works salvation. There's no such thing as, well, Christ adds, right? Christ started, I add in, you know, I get in by grace, I stand by faithfulness. No, you're not a party in the covenant aside from and being in Christ, you are either in Christ and you're alive or you're in Adam and you're dead. Those are the only two options. So that's the first principle that we talked about last week, where we're pushing is we want to talk about the church and covenant community. What does it mean to be a covenant community? And so we're starting to build that foundation. We're we're reviewing in a way uh, all the covenant theology that we talked about last year. And what we're pushing towards is, okay, let's take this this covenant stuff and let's apply it to the church and to what it means to be a community, to be a church that is founded upon the covenant. Because as we've talked about, the new covenant is the constitution of the church. This is the founding document, the Declaration of Independence, all that stuff, the Bill of Rights. The new covenant is, is the founding documents, the constitution for the church. So if you want to know what the church is, what the church does, where the church came from, you look to scripture and the new covenant because God made the church. God sets the terms. God creates the covenant. And then he brings us into it. right? He, he calls us out of the world, out of darkness, and into his kingdom. right? He has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1, to the kingdom of his beloved son. So... We're pushing towards what does this mean and and what does covenant do? Why why is covenant theology? Why are we talking about this so much? Um, And the first principle is that you're going to be in covenant with God. It's either going to be in Adam or it's going to be in Christ. And the second principle is that all covenants create community. All covenants create community. Covenants create communities. Um, If you are part of a country, a nation, which you are, um, you are a part of its covenant community. It creates that community. There's, it's, it just is, right? Uh, if you're part of a family, you are part of that covenant community that just exists um, because the covenant creates it. If you're a member of a credit union, right, you're a part of its covenant community. It's, It's not a very extensive one, not a very deep one, but it's still a covenant community. This is because covenants create communities, because covenants bind people together. Covenants bind people together with, with mutual obligations, mutual blessings, curses, sanctions. All these things go into what a covenant does to produce. It's, it's natural, what it naturally produces is a community. This means that uh, the church as a covenant community just is. Right? It's, it's, it just exists. It creates the community. Um, it means it's not an ideal It's a reality. It's something that is right now. And what we're trying to do is find out what it is and where are we deficient? Where have we gone wrong and where are we pushing towards? Where are we going? What's the goal of the covenant community? Um, But the community already exists. The community exists because covenants create communities. Um, And the third principle is that your identity is tied directly to your covenant community. Your identity is tied directly to your covenant community. So there's two covenant mediators. You're either in Adam and you're dead, or you're in Christ and you're alive. Covenants create communities, which means there's two communities that you're a part of Adam's or Christ's. And your identity is tied directly to which one you're in. So if you're in Adam, that is your identity. And that has profound implications for you, right? That profoundly um, uh, changes you it affects you such as your guilty standing before god that exists because you're in the covenant with adam you're guilty standing before god it's not simply your own sin right it's it's original sin it's adam's guilt that is why we are guilty before god and then we add to it with our own sin but we add to it with our own sin because we have a sin nature which is also an identity thing. That's because it comes from the covenant, because that sin nature gets passed on to us through the covenant, through being found in Adam. We have now a broken sin nature. Death came to all men because one man sinned. So your identity is now you're guilty before God. You have a sin nature, which means you're corrupt. Uh, It affects who you have fellowship with. Who do you have fellowship with? If you're in covenant with Adam, that is where you will find fellowship. And that is also why Jesus says that there will always be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between the church and the world, because these are two different communities, and they don't have fellowship with each other. Jesus says you can't be friends with the world because you do not have fellowship. You're at war. These two communities do not mix. It's oil and water. And that means that if you're in Adam, that is where your fellowship will be with other people who are in Adam. That is your covenant community. That's where you will have fellowship. You will not have fellowship with people in Christ. And conversely, people in Christ will not have fellowship with people in Adam. If you have unbelieving friends, you know there's a gulf between you two. It doesn't mean there can't be friendship, right? That doesn't mean you can't have a, a, a good relationship with an unbeliever. But it means that there is always going to be a barrier where you can't have the same sweet, joyful, uh, beautiful fellowship with an unbeliever that you would have with another Christian. It You can't. There's a There's a wall. There's a fundamental gap between these two communities. And so your identity is tied to your covenant community. Who do you have fellowship with? Your sin nature, your guilty standing before God. These are all covenantal realities because of where your, your identity is. It's tied to your covenant community. And so conversely, if you're in Jesus, that is your identity. That's your identity. It's who you are and that means that there are profound implications for being found in Christ such as your righteous standing before God your new nature who you have fellowship with right if if you're an Adam you're dead you have you're guilty before God you have a sin nature You have fellowship with the world and in darkness, and you walk in darkness. If you're in Christ, if you're in Jesus, that's your identity. That's your righteous standing before God. You have a new nature, not a sin one anymore. You have a new nature. You're a new man, and you have fellowship with each other because of this. So this this is the covenantal foundation. Why do we have community? Because of what Jesus did. Why do we have fellowship? Because we are united in Christ. Why do, we, why, do, why do we come to church? Because God has called us out of darkness and into light. Because he has, he has changed your identity. He has fundamentally shifted who you are. And, and that's why Jesus calls us a new birth. Because what has happened to you is so radical, it can only be described as a new birth. And Jesus says that unless you are born again or born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again in order to truly enter into the new kingdom, which means to be in Christ, to be born again. Um, so as you can imagine, um, in our society and in our culture, um, we, we live in a society in a time where identity is such a malleable thing. It is it is a it's some Play-Doh and you can kind of shape it however you want. Um, this goes completely against that idea. That your identity is actually shaped, not by what you want, but by what someone else did. Your identity is always shaped by what someone else has done, either Adam or Christ. Um, And this means that when, in our culture, the individualism that we find in America, the individualism uh, is actually inconsistent with the scriptures. Uh, It means... That the Bible doesn't teach us to think in terms of individuality, that we are this purely... We'll talk about this in a second. Um, But the Bible pushes us to to think about ourselves in a certain way. The Bible teaches us to think covenantally about ourselves, about each other, and about the world. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, What does it mean to think covenantally? What does it mean that the Bible teaches us to think covenantally about ourselves and about others? So we had a few principles. There's two covenant mediators. You're either an Adam and you're dead, or you're in Christ or you're alive. Covenants create communities, and your identity is tied to which community you're a part of. Um, and the Bible teaches us to think this way, to think in terms of covenant uh, and not in terms of uh, pure individualism. So let's, let's talk about first what individualism is, because this is the dominant worldview philosophy of the West in general. Um, that American culture is an individualistic culture. That's We, we kind of understand that to a degree, um, but let's talk about it and let's talk about what effects it has. So what is individualism? Can anyone define individualism for us? Okay, yeah. Um, a desire to be autonomous, independent, yeah, personal individual autonomy. That's a key part of individualism. Yeah, I am personally autonomous, which means I'm independent. Um, I don't need I don't need other things. other people I have I'm self-sufficient in a way. Yeah, Johnny? Okay, self-service. Yeah, in other words, what's at the heart of society? What does the universe revolve around? Me. Individualism is, is fundamentally a philosophy that the universe revolves around me, but individuals, that people as individuals, that's the heart of society, that's the core of society. And we can talk about where that goes. How does how does an individualistic society view um, the worth of individuals? By what they do. Okay, by what they do? Or how much money they have. <laughs> Perhaps. Um, well to put it another way, does every individual have worth in an individualistic society? Intrinsically? Why do you say no? Well, at least I'm positive for I think a lot of the, the way that people look is is you have worth to the extent that it affects me. Um, if I'm the center of the universe, your value is, is dependent on what I can get from you. Okay. Sure. Yeah. In a sense, you could see how, if you played this out to its logical extreme, that the worth then would be tied to what can you do for me? Yeah. Uh, in other words, individualism leads to a very transactional culture, right? A very transactional culture where it's all about give and take. It's it, You can see how individualism and, and capitalism, they tend to go together because it's very transactional. It's what can I get from you? What can I give to you? I don't want these chickens. I want your goats. Let's do a swap. Um, Charlie, did you hand up? Yeah, I was thinking in the other direction about your question about worth and that
1: you know, inescapably in individualism there's a su- subjectivity, so because it's it's what you consider your work to be, you decide for self-referential and and there's no universal law to appeal to to establish our worth and value. It's what you provide or decide in and of yourself and that's where
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in other words, what's the greatest? What's the greatest good from a secular individualist society? What's the greatest good? Self actualization, happiness. You know, whatever makes me happy, um, whatever feels good. You know, these are these are some of the maybe the implications or the outflows. Um, at at least conceptually, individualism seeks to you know uh, to emphasize the personal autonomy and individual uh, and and independence of the individual. It affirms, at least conceptually, that every individual has intrinsic value. Every person has intrinsic worth because they're in, in, they're a unique individual, right? That means something that has worth and value. Um, but at the core, right? It 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 kind of pushes us. And you see how it comes out in society where what is identity? Identity is what I want it to be. It's whatever I feel, whatever I feel, um, it's, it comes out in and pushing against um, dogma, against authority, against any sort of higher thing over me because that that's, that's not good. That's restricting my autonomy. Right? Um, and you see this a lot in, in the West in America. Um, so what sort of effects, does individualism have on church when we start to embrace this philosophy? What sort of effects does individualism have on church, on churches, when they start to embrace individualism as a philosophy, whether they realize it or not? Yeah. 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 Church becomes, uh, what can I get out of it? start to look for a church that fits your needs. Um, In other words, it's a consumeristic view of church. What can I consume? What can I get? How does this typically lead to... um, Views of church authority, submission. Is that good or bad for an individual? Do they do they like authority and submission? Do they like Ephesians five? Do they like Hebrews thirteen seventeen? Or is that bad? That's nah, bad. Submission's a bad word. Right, whether it's husband and wife, whether it's church and church members. Right, Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, "Submit to your leaders." That's a bad word. Uh, I had a conversation with someone once where I brought that verse up, and and they were saying, "No, no, no, that doesn't mean pastors and elders. That means Paul. That means Jesus." Okay, it's just it's just we don't they don't want to think about that. They don't want that because that. That violates their autonomy. That violates their independence. That violates the freedom. That violates the, the the core of individualism is I'm the center. Therefore, I am qualified to do all those things that that pastors and elders do. In other words, I don't need, I don't need a pastor to tell me what the Bible says. I can go and read it at home. And I can get the same thing. I don't need an elder to watch over my life. I have Jesus in my heart. I don't need a creed. I don't need a a catechism or confession. That's that's dogma, right? That's that comes down from the religious establishment. That's just oppression. Uh, I don't have a creed. I have Christ. No creed but Christ Um, because creeds are authoritarian, which means we need to reject them because they're not genuine Christianity. Because what is genuine Christianity? What I feel. Church is where I go to experience religious emotions, get a pep talk, I don't need someone to talk to me about my life. I don't need someone to tell me what the Bible says. Um, I don't need someone to have authority over me. I don't need other believers because I have you Jesus. Know, part of the
1: problem of atheists, too. It's all about submission. Yes, there is a God to whom they're responsible. They don't want to go there for this reasons.
0: Yep. Yeah. You cannot you cannot admit God exists, yeah, no matter how good the arguments because then that means you have to submit to him <laughs> yeah, well, as long as we're going to the word because the the greater good for the individual is is how I feel, what makes me happy what what what's good for me um, so' let's b- briefly, what's the opposite of individualism if if it's a you know, a sliding scale if individualism is over here, what's on the other side? what uh, it's a good guess, but i'm I'm thinking <laughs> yeah, not individualism. Um, what's that interdependence, okay um so if society and individualism, if the heart of society is the individual, what's the opposite of that? What would the heart of society be in the opposite worldview, the opposite philosophy? Okay, dictatorship, but they, you're right in a way, because dictatorships typically have this philosophy, but they work because they have a certain thing at the heart of society. The dictator is not at the heart of society. What's at the heart? Masha? Society. Yeah. The the collective. That's the heart of society in the opposite worldview. So you have individualism. Heart of society is the individual. Um, The opposite of that is collectivism. Um, Think USSR, right? You have to do your part for the good of the society, the good of the USSR. You have to give all your grain to Stalin because you're serving the cause you're serving your comrades you're serving something greater than you right in individualism you're the greater you're the greatest thing in a collectivism you're serving actually something greater than you you're serving the collective which is the the conglomeration of of all the the people in the society and that's the that's the good that's the greatest good is what's good for the society which means that individual freedoms, personal autonomy, those will be the first to go if it means that it's better for society, quote unquote better. Um, Yeah, 1984. Exactly. So what it's pushing at is that I must lay down my freedoms for the greater good. And in an individualistic society, they'd say, well, my freedoms are the greater good. Right. That that is the greater good that I want. so these are two polar opposites. So in the East, Russia, China, typically Asian countries, wherever things like Buddhism um, has, has deep roots. This is the dominant philosophy, collectivism, some sort of one, one world spirit, one collective mass of humanity, um, things like that. In the West, you have typically individualism, that sort of philosophy. So which one is right? Which one's biblical? Neither of, them. <laughs> Neither of them. Okay, but is there any part of either of them that's correct? Is there any truth in either of them? What's where where's the truth nuggets?
1: Similarities in these sorts of things we are called to give up our personal um, desires and or rights for others paul talks about this about you know, eating certain foods and your brother and stuff we give up your freedom for them we are to think about the kingdom the kingdom first not necessarily our individual goals and gains right so as a body we are to think of ourselves as one in that sense mm-hmm. And interactions are to be for the glory of that body but that body is free so it's the true body, whereas all these other ones in collectivism are counterfeit bodies. Right. Temporal or worldly, they're not going to be there. So that's where similarities, at least in collectivism, would overlap with how you can get hooked in. it. it sounds a lot like things that you would see in scripture, but there is
0: graphics that's in there so yeah. 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 I appreciate that. I think you're right. Um, collectivism gets some things right, because it's it it there is a greater whole, there is a greater good than just me. Right. I'm actually I am called in scripture to lay down my freedoms for the good of my brother. Right? Paul, Charlie brought up Paul saying, well, I won't eat meat if it makes my brother stumble. Right? I will lay that freedom down. Even though I'm free in Christ, I will lay that down for the good of my brother because I love him and I will love him more than myself. So in a way, right, collectivism has elements of truth, but but the problem is what's at the core is society, the, the collective human consciousness, I don't know, a bunch of, bunch of weird stuff. Um, and watch, watch for this because this is where society is probably going to end up is a sense of collectivism because individualism and secularism is failing and people are saying, well, and even atheists are saying, well, morality comes from the, the, the collective human consciousness. Um, AI has been called the collective human consciousness. Watch for those little things, right? Because it it shows that there's maybe some some currents leading towards a collectivism mindset, possibly. Uh, Anyways, that's an aside. But there's there's some truth there in collectivism, and likewise, there's some truth in individualism. We are individuals. We are each unique. We're not the same, right? I'm not Garen. Garen's not me. We don't look the same, we don't talk the same, we don't have the same gifts. Um, we are different, we are individuals, and yet we're part of something bigger, something greater. Something that's actually greater than the sum of its parts, the body of Christ. So that's how the Bible talks about us. The Bible doesn't talk in terms of individualism or collectivism. The Bible talks in terms of covenant. Covenantal thinking is how we are to see ourselves. And not individualism, not collectivism, but the Bible actually pushes us somewhere unique in that we are a body with distinct parts. Paul talks about how the, the body has different parts and the parts are not the same. The ear is not the eye and the eye is not the foot. And yet, how many bodies are there? One there's one body distinct parts have one body the church is a building right each brick is unique and in a and in a unique position and yet it's one building and the mortar that binds each brick together the the bones that hold the body upright is the covenant because the covenant does not smush us all into one human blob um but neither does the covenant, neither is the covenant just a box to hold a bunch of marbles in, and we're all just different marble in the box. No, the, 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 the covenant connects us in a real way to Christ and to each other in a way that transcends our individuality, but this does not result in uniformity. So we have unity but we don't have uniformity. We are united, but we're not all the same. So if you were to spend time thinking about Buddhism or talking to Buddhists, you would get the sense that we're all really just the same, right? We look different, but really we're the same we're the same. In essence, there's one spirit. We're all part of this. And the goal is to to transcend your individuality, the goal is to transcend your individuality to, to f- fully join the, the big blob in the sky or whatever it is. Um, that's where Buddhism pushes. That's where typically Eastern philosophy pushes. Um, but that's uniformity. That's we're all the same. right? And that's the basis for morality in the East is, well, we're all the same. And you wouldn't stab yourself in, in, in the back, so don't stab someone else in the back because you're the same. But that's not how scripture teaches us to, t- to think. We, don't, we, we love others as we would want to be loved, but not because we're the same thing. Not because there's really only one thing and we're all just part of the one thing. No, we are separate. We're unique. We're distinct. And yet, we are united. So unity, not uniformity. Um, So we're not a bunch of individuals who happen to be in the same room at the same time, but neither are we the same as each other. Um, So the Bible talks about the covenant and uses this as the basis to to push us. How do we think about ourselves? How do we think about each other? Well, the answer is the covenant. So covenantal thinking, that's where we're pushing. That's where we're going to go. What does it mean to think covenantally about myself and about each other and as one and yet distinct one body yet different parts um it's actually a great a great verse because there's one bread we who are many right we're many we're different there's a lot of us we're individual we're distinct and yet we're one body for we all partake of the one bread so real quick um, what's what is the foundation where does our unity Come from? God
1: placed us all as individuals in the body of Christ, each
0: individual. Yeah, God, first of all, God did it. Amen. But how did he do it? Yeah. We are united because we're united to Christ. So, in other words, the foundation of our unity, where does it come from? We're connected to Christ. You're either in an Adam and you're dead, or you're in Christ and you're alive. And if you're in Christ, you are united to him and you are united to each other. So, Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Remember that language of, of the covenant of grace. Who was it made with? was made with God the Father and Jesus Christ and all the elect in him. And so we were baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We've been united to Christ. That means that we are in covenant with Christ. That means he's our covenant head. That means whatever happens to Christ happens to me. If Christ dies, I die. If Christ is raised, I am raised. That is the covenantal reality that connects me to you. That we are connected by Christ, by what Christ has done for us. By the fact that Christ died for you and he died for me. And when he died, I died and you died. And when he rose again, you rose again, I rose again. And now we are together, united in Christ in his body. That is where our unity comes from. It's covenantal. It's, it's, it's what God did. And it means it's reality. Whether or not with, whether or not it looks great. Charlie? Charlie? What do you mean? Just thinking
1: about how you were trying to pull from volume groups of individualism, collectivism, is the covenant in itself, is it like is it is our place in it a voluntary association?
0: Does that make sense? Uh do you mean did we decide whether or not to associate with Christ?
1: I guess maybe maybe in its historical manifestation.
0: Um I'm not. I'm not quite clear what you're asking. Are you asking if if I can decide to let Jesus into my heart? So, so you were, we were pulling from individualism
1: and collectivism, and individualism obviously has more self-reference than collectivism, right? Um, and I was just thinking of of if, if covenant is the middle ground and how it still relates to the individual aspect of it. I guess in history and thinking about, you know, us, how we are in the pitfalls of, of individualism. It just had me thinking about sort of our association to each other where a covenant, could it be described as a voluntary association? Um, we, we can this thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this is a sidebar because I'm, I'm still not quite sure what you're asking. So let, let's talk later and. All that the Father gives to
1: me will come to me, and one who comes to me I will not cast out. Right. the, father, who the, come the is, is, will yeah. come to Christ. And Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me."
0: Right. I. I yeah. I, let's let's by this because we don't have we don't have any more time.
1: And, and so I guess with using that kind of language, it's like proclamation versus invitation, an offer versus imposition. Inf- is a covenant, like, is it voluntary or is it imposed? Is it? And I guess that's your language is kind of that at that.
0: we can get later. Yeah, yeah, let's let's talk later. I, I'm, I just want to be more clear. We don't have a lot of time. Um, are, there, are there any other questions or, or comments or concerns? Tomatoes you want to throw? you know in, in all all my time here, no one has ever thrown a tomato, and just want to say thank you. Um, all right, well, let us pray and get ready to go to worship. God, we thank you so much for uh, your covenant. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us, and that you have united us to Christ. Um, Lord, we thank you for the unity we have. Lord, we pray that as we come to worship you, that we would that we would that we would see and and know that we are united to each other and to Christ. As we worship together, that we would join with one voice to praise our one Lord as we partake of the one bread um, and hear the one truth of the gospel. Lord, please feed us and fill us today. uh, And I pray that you would grow us towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.